You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. In this episode of Radio Free Humanity, we bring you part two of our interview with David Norman Smith discussing the attitudes of Trump voters. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll get to part two of our interview with David Norman Smith. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So regular listeners to the podcast will know that for a long time now, Marxist Humanist Initiative has held that uh, Trumpism is a pre-existing condition, by which we mean that neoliberalism did not create Trumpism, these sort of racist and authoritarian, misogynistic cultural tendencies um, predate neoliberalism and are, are have existed for a long time in American politics. And we have been very critical of those on the left who want to pander to those sentiments in order to gain votes. Today we want to talk about an early manifestation or maybe the first manifestation of this attempt on the left to pander to this base with a message of economism that rejects the struggle against racism. Recently, we came across an article in Mother Jones uh, by Tommy Craggs. This is about three months ago. He was saying that this narrative that, oh, it's the white working class suffering economic distress that is at the root of the appeal of Trumpism, this got trotted out once again in a big way across the political spectrum in the aftermath of the presidential election. You know, the go-to narrative among all kinds of people. He makes a good point, Craig, it's really across the political spectrum. The narrative is that the Democratic Party long ago abandoned the New Deal, abandoned the working class, meaning the so-called white working class, and they've been suffering economic distress, and here they are punishing uh, the Democrats. What Craig does that I found so interesting is he goes back to the start of this narrative. And where this narrative starts is with a pollster and strategist for the Democratic Party named Stanley Greenberg. And Greenberg's got a very interesting history. You know, he didn't start off as being kind of an apologist for racism or for policies that are meant to pander to racism. But in the aftermath of the 1984 election, where Ronald Reagan, I mean, cleaned up big and uh, Walter Mondale was absolutely decimated, the Democratic candidate. What happened is the United Auto Workers saw that, hey, you know, it wasn't just a fluke that because uh, you had George McGovern in 1972 running and he was anti-war and he had hippie support or whatever. Okay, you could think maybe that was why uh, UAW members, a lot of them all of a sudden abandoned the Democratic Party in the election of 72 and went for the re-election of Richard Nixon. But this phenomenon was continuing and they were going for somebody who was 
further to the right the the Nixon and that and that was Ronald Reagan. So the UAW commissioned a study and it turned to Greenberg. Greenberg had been kind of like a left wing person, and I mean to this day he's married to Rosa DeLauro, a congresswoman who was you know a prominent member of the uh, Progressive Caucus uh, in, in the House of Representatives. So he comes from a very different background, but Greenberg did these focus groups with voters in Macomb County, uh, Michigan, which is an outlying suburb of Detroit. And Macomb County, Michigan had a lot of auto workers, a lot of UAW members. And in early 1985, Greenberg does these focus groups with them, and he tries to find out why they have abandoned the, the Democratic Party and gets very heavily involved then with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton says, you know, write up this stuff and turn it into a book, and, and uh, Greenberg did, and it was called Middle Class Dreams, and it came out, I think, 1995. The thing to understand about Macomb County is these are UAW members, a lot of them, Macomb County represents white flight. At the time, it was like 97% white, in marked contrast to Detroit. What's very interesting is, what, although Greenberg is basically saying the way we've got to go is to get away from these programs that are targeted to the poor, targeted to blacks. We have to have programs that are universal and across the board. And he blames the failures of the Democratic Party electorally on Lyndon Johnson and the war on poverty. And what he basically says is, why Why is he blaming Lyndon Johnson for this? Well, these voters in Macomb County blamed Johnson and the Democrats for abandoning them and appealing instead to the special, special interest and especially the blacks. So what's very interesting is Greenberg is basically putting forward the kind of outlook and strategy of Bill Clinton. Let's tamp down any concern with race. Let's try to recapture these people who have become Reagan Democrats. But what's so interesting about Greenberg, when he does this, he doesn't pull any punches. He is absolutely clear that these folks that he's talking to and that have become Reagan Democrats and are now like Trump whatevers, he's very clear that what is driving them is racism. Does he call it racism? Oh, yeah, he does call it racism. Because nowadays so many people on the left just call it anti-elitism. Here's one way he puts it, characterizing their views. Their views were that in the 1960s and 70s, the leaders who were supposed to fight for them seemed to care more about the blacks in Detroit and the protesters on campus. They seemed to care more about equal rights and abortion than about mortgage payments and crime. What, well, actually, what I found most interesting in light of what Marxist Humanist Initiative has said about Trumpism being a pre-existing condition, is where was Macomb County prior to neoliberalism and globalization? Because by the time that Greenberg gets to these folks, he does these focus groups with them, that is already early 1985. And that is already a period when there are a lot of auto jobs disappearing and, you know, high unemployment and, and, and so forth among auto workers and other people in manufacturing jobs and so forth. Okay, so the focus groups don't provide any direct evidence that the racism is something that predated, you know, the deindustrialization of America. But 
Greenberg is under no illusions about this. He begins his chapter before talking about the focus groups in 1985. He begins the chapter by talking about what the situation was in the decade and a half before then. And he says in 1968, there wasn't much excitement for Richard Nixon's law and order candidacy. But one in five of the voters voted for the independent George Wallace. In Macomb County, there was not a lot of sympathy, he writes, for the rioters who burned down more than 100 buildings in Detroit during five days in July 1967. And that, that was a major urban rebellion. Uh, as he reports, the, they, they called in 4,700 U.S. paratroopers, as well as the National Guard and local police, and 43 people died in, uh, in Detroit in 67. And so he says, in the next, over the next four years, 67 to 71, this is well before neoliberalism, uh, the people here in Macomb were consumed with the racial character of their world. It was the most segregated uh, metropolitan area in America. Barely any blacks, just 5%, were able to break into Detroit's suburban ring. And then in September of 71, a U.S. Uh, district judge ordered the busing of school children. That was eventually overturned by the Supreme Court but he writes, quote, even so, the decision caused a firestorm in white suburbia, particularly in Macomb. There were rallies and marches everywhere. Every community sprouted anti-busing organizations. The largely white region of the America, uh, United Auto Workers, where Macomb County was, broke with the liberal leadership of the UAW to oppose busing. And the next year was uh, another Democratic primary, and this is one of the things that we in MHI have highlighted. This is not the Deep South, you know, Michigan. Nonetheless, George Wallace won the Michigan Democratic primary. In fact, he got a majority of the votes in the Michigan Democratic primary in 1972. And in Macomb County, uh, he won 66% of the vote in the Democratic primary. And that was despite endorsements by the AFL-CIO, the Teamsters, and the UAW of Humphrey, McGovern, but that didn't matter in, in Macomb. And then in the general election in 72, George McGovern only got like 36% of the vote. So it went way, way big for, for Richard Nixon in the, in the general election. So all of that predates the neoliberalism, the globalization, and so forth. By the time that Greenberg is talking to these people in focus groups, you know, they have some real economic grievances, but their economic grievances are couched in terms of racism, and the, it's, it's clear that the racism pre-exists the, the, the economic uh, grievances. Right. So I, does he call them racist? Not exactly, but here's, here's, here's Greenberg in his own words. These suburban voters felt nothing in common with Detroit and its people and rejected out of hand the social justice claims of black Americans. They denied that blacks suffer special disadvantages that would require special treatment by employers or the government. They had no historical memory of racism and no tolerance for present efforts to offset it. They felt no sense of personal or collective responsibility that would support government anti-discrimination and civil rights policies. So basically he's saying these people are racist and we should pander to them by talking about the grievances of the white working class. Yeah, right. I mean, he, he, he understands exactly what's going on, uh, I think, and he just says, well, hell with it. 
you're not going to change these folks' minds, so you got to play their game. Well, there's a lot more we could say about Stanley Greenberg's work on this issue and its influence on left thinking for the past couple of decades, but we are out of time. Um, maybe maybe we'll revisit this topic in a longer format um, in a future podcast. Well, up next is part two of our interview with David Norman Smith. David Smith is a sociologist who has studied and written about class and cultural conflict for many years. Key themes of his research include prejudice, anti-Semitism, and authoritarianism. And he has published widely on genocide, with attention especially to the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. Since 2011, he has studied authoritarianism and anti-authoritarianism in the electorate, about which he has published several articles with his colleague Eric Hanley. Lately, Smith has also been studying the ways progressives think and talk about authoritarianism. When we left this interview in our last episode, um, Mr. Smith was discussing the post-truth environment and the different relationship to the concept of truth between Trump voters and um, the rest of the universe. The, the point here is that there really is a dividing line here. I'm with you in the sense that I'm, I'm in the, the camp that believes very strongly in science and in the kind of evidence and facts that science generates. But that's in part because for all kinds of reasons, which are partly biographical, um, I know a lot of scientists. I, I trust the seriousness of the people in the scientific enterprise, and I I greatly value the data they gather. So, of course, what we're discussing today is data that, you know, I and others are gathering uh, with respect for facts. Um, But my point is that we really are dealing with two different mentalities here, and without judging them, I mean, that's, that's, you know, I'll leave that to others, without judging them, I think it's really important to see that what some liberals and progressives see as simply uh, a sort of ununderstandable uh, disregard for empirical data actually is understandable. It's understandable in terms of a, a different way of thinking and feeling about truth. That may not be the one that I share or you share, but people who, who subscribe to that worldview feel very strongly that what they are saying and thinking is true, and they think it's true in a certain sense, in a way that's almost deeper than fact. I don't share that worldview, but I think it's important if we're trying to think in a fine-grained way about the world, how to navigate in the world, we need to uh, sort of try to understand that perspective from the inside to the extent that we can. I, I, I think that this is very, very important, important because, because if we actually talk about facts, as opposed to truth, because, you know, what, what you're saying is there could be a view that, like, uh, I have the truth, uh, I believe in the truth because it comes from my gut, or I have the truth because it comes from my gut, or whatever. But I, I think it's deeper than these folks thinking that the scientists cherry-pick facts. Uh, I think we've seen this in a big way with people's willingness to glom onto Trump's lies that, you know, the election was stolen from him. This is not just people thinking other people are cherry-picking facts. These are people ignoring facts in, in a very big way. And you get not only scientists, you get uh, Trump judges again and again dismissing cases. What was he, what, one for 62, challenging the, the election results in the, in the courts. So there is a lack of respect for facts 
and not just the feeling of the other side. It's cherry picking facts. So I think that that it, it's helpful to distinguish between respect for facts and belief in you know some notion of truth. Every everybody believes in some notion of truth, except for a few postmodernists and and and, and such. You're making a point that's essentially critical of the what I'm calling the existential attitude towards truth. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that people who subscribe to that existential concept of truth have low regard for the kind of empirical notion of truth that, that you're putting forward. Uh, there's clearly uh, a, a, a disregard for that. But let's look at – but I think there's, again, to go back to the issue of, of, the, more, of the kind of moral divide here – uh, like, the, like, take the issue of who won the election. Now, from the stand, from the ordinary empirical standpoint, obviously Joseph Biden won the election. Um, if, if you if you believe as 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 I do, that the election was not um, stolen in the conventional sense, uh, he genuinely got 81 million votes, but Trump genuinely got 74 million votes. So, by ordinary empirical criteria, the ones that most journalists and pundits use. It's an open and shut case. Biden won the election. Now, obviously, there are many people who do think the election was outright stolen, that the voting machines were tampered with. I mean, that's their that's their belief. But, but if you, again, if you look sort of beyond the surface, if the world is genuinely divided between good people and bad people, um, you could ask the question, should 81 million votes from, from out groups count more than 74 million votes from from the right people. There's even so there's a sort of natural tendency for liberals and progressives to think that one person one vote is an inviolable principle that it's inherent to the whole idea of a constitutional democracy and it's a it's a view that I subscribe to. But if you really think the world is divided between good people and bad people, you could easily wonder whether the votes of bad people should count as much as the votes of good people. And I think there's a kind of intuition uh, that many people share that the best people in the country did not win the election and that their votes should have been enough to win the election. I don't know if that, I don't know, I, I, I'm just speculating. I've never heard anybody say that in so many words, and I don't want to put, you know, words in so many Nobody has said it in so many words, but black commentators in, in particular, but not only blacks, uh, are very sharply focused on, yes, this is the real meaning of the election being stolen, is that black people should not be voting, or at least they should not have the ability to determine the election as against real Americans. And this is the entire reason that Trump was focused on saying it's Philadelphia, it's Milwaukee, and places where the, the alleged voting fraud occurred. Okay, it was you know a racist dog whistle that the election is being taken from you by the Democrats because they are beholden to these quote special interests. I, I really think that that is undeniable. The point that you're, you're, you're making. So, what do you think about this disambiguation, whereby we say, yeah, you know, they can think that's the larger truth that they're the real Americans and that outgroups shouldn't count as much as real Americans. But with regard to facts, there is nothing to be said for this case that the election was stolen. You could not like the fact that the elections run as they do, but the election was not stolen. 
Right. So empirically, that's absolutely true as I see it and as you see it. And I think absolutely um, people who value evidence of, in the way that, that we value it should, should stand up for that value. Absolutely. So to shift gears very slightly, just to sort of raise the question, of like, what's some of the point of uh, addressing these issues? I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is that since there is at the moment an anti-Trump majority in the way that we're describing now, um, 81 million votes were genuinely cast, at least in part, against Trump. Since there is an anti-Trump majority, that opens the door to the possibility of some fairly major and, and urgently needed reforms. So the debate that's going on among in liberal and progressive circles is over how to realize at least some part of those reforms. And there are a lot of people, particularly in the centrist wing of the Democratic Party, who want to say, look, the way to pass a reform, the way to enact reforms is to reach out to people on the other side of the aisle, on the other side of the culture war, and find common ground around uh, like lowest common denominator issues, the kinds of issues that they call kitchen table issues. And I support, and I'm confident that you support, every constructive reform at the level of the kitchen table. Anything that will help real people is, is to be desired. But if you have to basically postpone or forget about the bigger reforms that might alienate your potential supporters for those small reforms, you've opened a, a really big question. So my own sense is that um, there are relatively few people in Trump's base who are going to move very far away from their their basic worldview, uh, which I think they they held before Trump appeared on the scene, and they hold very strongly. I think that there are a couple of issues that could win broad, broad public support. Uh, a couple of uh, there are a couple of issues, uh, but they're relatively relatively small. I think we should certainly press for those reforms. But if liberals and progressives push for bigger reforms um, of the kind that the Black Lives Matter movement put forward or of the kind that revolve around uh, uh, pro-choice or the other issues that liberals and progressives usually put front and center, understanding that only relatively few people will change sides in the culture war in the short term is a sobering thought. Uh, my own personal feeling is that the way to push for bigger reforms is to ex is expand our camp. Um, expand our camp where it can be expanded among young people who are going to vote in 2024, among people who have not yet been drawn into the process but can be perhaps in the way that happened recently in Georgia. And I think the way to do that is to push for real and significant and bigger reforms and not water down the agenda to win a few Trump to Biden switchers. And I, I say that without, I say, I say that literally without any disrespect for, um, for Trump voters. The question is simply an empirical one. Is it likely that very many of them will come around to a, a, a progressive reform agenda? And I just can't see much real chance of that centrist politicians will beat the drums for that effort because 
partly because their objectives are not that big to begin with. And as we talked a lot about on this podcast, it's not just the centrist politicians. It's a, a lot of the left, especially the, the left that calls itself the left uh, on Jacobin magazine and uh, and elsewhere. They they sound kind of identical to Tim Ryan, who's on the right wing of the congressman who's on the right wing of the Democratic Party. But yeah, they've been beating the same uh, kind of colorblind class politics, so-called called line. And based on the fact that, as you were saying, you know, a lot of the, the Trump voters are not economic conservatives. They were saying, aha, we can uh, make inroads uh, among them. And I, I think I think it's been shown that they haven't had much success at that. But it's I think I think they, they just confuse the breadth of support for certain questions about do you want uh, health care? with what is really driving people when they, they, they look at the options in front of the, the country and when they go to the, the voting booth. Well, I have a question about the relationship of these Trumpite, these core beliefs to disinformation and the sort of post-truth universe. We see a lot of discussion of the Trumpite base that sometimes makes it seem like they are victims of disinformation. Your presentation of the Trumpite base explains that they have sort of these core beliefs that are seem to be sort of pre-fact and that they then select the facts that uh, reinforce their beliefs. We do live in an age, though, where this ability to surround oneself in an ecosystem of information that just supports one's pre-existing beliefs is really strong and um, seems to have like an accelerating fact on like the radicalization of people and and the way they behave. So, you know, how do you see the role of disinformation and uh, social media and this sort of propaganda universe to this Trumpite base? Is this propaganda and disinformation just sort of like the the match that lights the kindling? Right. I th- yeah, that's a, a really good way to, to frame it. I mean, I, I would say on the one hand, that the issue of confirmation bias is basic and one of the central lessons of of social psychology, the study of attitudes, um, in my opinion, is that people believe what they want to believe. And so that that, that by and large, people tend to seek out uh, information that comports with their worldview. I think it's very clear that the internet has made the availability of a wide range of alternative facts readily at hand. Um, so there's much more fuel for people's you know, thinking and their, and their internet dialogues with each other about these issues. And I think that's an important issue and, and one that you know, has to be properly understood. We are living in 2021. The internet is a, a very big part of our contemporary social world. And it is definitely adding more fuel to this fire and the the phrase kindling you used. But let me give you a couple of points that I think establish what I think is the deeper truth. And that is that politicians, by and large, tell people what they think they want to hear. And I don't think that's really any different for Donald Trump. It, It may be what they also believe, but they will succeed only if they tell people what they want to hear. So what people want to hear precedes that. Here's a small anecdote you might not recall. Back in 1988, when the first George Bush was running for president, um, Roger Ailes, 
who was later the founder of Fox News, was his campaign manager. And Ailes and Bush were trying to figure out what issues, what themes Bush should present while running for president. And they did something really unique that I've always found intriguing. Uh, Ailes rented like an old movie theater in a New Hampshire town uh, with plush seats. And he inserted electrodes into the seats. And he invited uh, a random sample of, of potential primary voters to come and hear George Bush uh, express a number of opinions. Uh, it turns out that physiologically, when people hear something they like, they literally warm to the comment. They respond warmly. So the electrodes were intended to measure people's like electrochemical responses to different possible applause lines. So Bush came on stage with a stack of three by five cards, and he read one after another, after another, and the ones that registered high on the voltmeter were used as a basis for his subsequent campaign speeches. This is a classic example of what I like to call a politician surfing public opinion. He wanted to get a positive response. Here's a, a fact about Trump that hasn't been widely noted, and of course Trump was a great admirer of Roger Ailes. Uh, he has said so recently. Trump, as early as 2014, was considering the possibility of a run for president, and an article by Gabriel Sherman in The Atlantic in 2016 reported how this started. Trump hired staff and assigned them to listen to call-in shows on talk radio and find out what are people talking about, what, what's hot right now. And they reported back that immigration was... Uh, rising rapidly on the charts. And so Trump, who had not formerly had a very distinct position on immigration, made immigration one of his central planks. Later, when he had begun to talk about immigration in the campaign, uh, Steve Bannon suggested to him that he could say, I'll build a wall. And Trump said, oh, oh really? Okay, I'll try that. And, you know, Trump, with his odd candor, has sometimes outright said these things himself. So Bannon said, say that you'll build a wall. Trump said it. It got big, big cheers. So Trump made it part of his platform. And then later, when he happened to use the phrase drain the swamp in a speech, he got huge applause. And he thought, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll keep saying that. So in any event, I could go on with further anecdotes. But I think this is, these are concrete examples of the ways that politicians think. I mean, not all politicians, obviously, but if you want votes, you need to say what people want to hear. The question is, do leaders follow? I think in many respects, followers lead and leaders actually follow. If Trump had started taking a completely different line towards immigration, if he had said there's absolutely no need for a wall, if he had said that Washington, D.C. is just fine, there's no such thing as a deep state, um, would he have gotten those votes? I don't think he would have. Yeah, I, I think I think you're quite right about that, and I think that this helps to clarify what seemed to be a mystery of Trump's deep connection to his base and people saying, "Well, you know, here here's here's a politician I can understand, and he says what I think." Yeah, the reason he says what you think is you've said it when you called in to Rush Limbaugh. 
and he or his people have been recording that and all the people like you they keep saying it and then they tried it out on the stage and they got massive ovations and people in the audience started to pay attention so they they ran with it i mean this is how trump operates it's a very simple strategy and what makes it so effective is the, the actual lack of real beliefs uh, uh, by, by Trump. I mean, apart from just deep-seated racism and misogyny, you know, he, he really had no other ideological agenda. So a lot of people are constrained by some kind of ideological agenda from going whole hog and just telling people what they want to hear. Uh, they would do it, but they would do it with reluctance or with caveats. He just did it, and it, it, it worked quite well, which really goes into the – it goes to the whole issue of what's totally broken about electoral politics. But that's a whole other discussion. So the, the politicians tell people what they want to hear, and that goes to the issue of Trump being an expression of – the will and strivings and resentments of, of his base not having created them. And well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead because it seems to be the appropriate point. Uh, that brings us to the 74.2 million question. Trump is at least temporarily gone. He's at least temporarily permanently banned from, from Twitter. And he might be facing a slew of civil and uh, criminal uh, charges, but the 74.2 million people who, who who voted for him are still around, and a lot of people are very resigned these days. They go, well, they're going to be with us for a long time, and I'm thinking, whoa, if they're going to be with us, how do we know we have a very long time? So what can be done about this? What should be done about this? You said, you know, the idea of pandering to such people to move them to the left by enticing them with social democratic goodies, that, that's not going to work. So you said that uh, the, the other side has got to mobilize and try to win. But what can be done about that, 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 that base? Well, in a certain fundamental sense, I think it's, it's simply a reality and will remain there. A lot of discussion has been taking place in recent days and weeks about the possibility that with Trump less visible or retiring from politics, um, that his base might dissipate in their, in their attitudes or that they might diminish in their numbers. I think that those things will not happen. He says what I think. Even if he stops saying it, they'll keep thinking it. And he, he, as you were saying, Andrew, um, he says those things because they want to hear those things. And so it seems quite likely, actually, that Trump will not leave the stage. You probably saw that you know, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy went to Mar-a-Lago, I think it was just yesterday, to confer with Trump about the 2022 midterm elections. If the Senate, as appears likely, does not convict Trump in his impeachment trial, he will be eligible to run again for president in 2024, and he'll probably form a campaign committee in the near future begin collecting money and, and conducting rallies. But even if we don't, even if Trump were to exit the stage, we would still have Trumpism. So at this point, I, I revert to something I, I began with, which is that 81 million people voted against Trump. And I think that the trend is in that direction. Um, so watering down 
what those 81 million people want is a way to lose a lot of the enthusiasm in, in that part of the popul population. Is there a solution? Can we find harmony? Can we find the kind of unity that President Biden is calling for? I'm deeply skeptical. But with or without that kind of unity, and I think, I think our, our priority should be to press for the bigger reforms that would really, really qualitatively improve people's, people's lives. And I think the kinds of reforms particularly that have emerged from social movements that, um, that need social movements to be their carriers. So that's a kind of non-answer answer because you know and I know that it's sort of generic and it's easier to say than to do. But what we're not, I don't think, I don't think history is offering us any easy answers here. Uh, we simply have some real social movements. We have tens and tens of millions of people who do want meaningful change. And I think finding a way to, to leverage that wish into meaningful change in, in, in growing and strengthening social movements is, uh, is the optimum out outcome that I can envision uh, in the next period. Right. So you've said that a lot of people, researchers, pundits, just all kinds of commentators have fundamentally misunderstood what Trump supporters are supporting when they support Trump. You know, the discussion of so-called economic anxiety and, and so forth. But these misunderstandings keep reappearing. I mean, even after four years of Trump and all that he did, and uh, the, the, the moment we get another close election in this past November, all of a sudden I began hearing about economic anxiety once more. So why are these misunderstandings so resilient? Why don't they get corrected as we get more and more evidence that they're wrong? I mean, evidence from the Daily News, you know, Charlottesville not being a deal breaker now, the fascist insurrection at the Capitol not being a deal breaker, and from the quantitative research uh, that sociologists and political scientists and other people have done. Why does this misunderstanding, why is it so resilient against, I hate to use the term, facts, uh, is it just a matter of ideological blinders that people have, or is it driven by political considerations, or, or, or what? I have a, an opinion about this. I think it's primarily psychological. We've talked a great deal about Trump voters, but it's very important to pay attention to people who vote against Trump, who oppose Trump, and to try to understand what makes them tick, what makes us tick. I've had long experience in local civic activities, working with extremely generous, well-intentioned people who can't really believe that anybody really means them ill. They can't really believe that anybody holds Trumpite views ardently and immovably. I call, I call this a kind of, I, I've, for lack of a better phrase, I've been using in conversations with my friends, I've been using the term liberal denial. And I don't insist on the word liberal by any means. I'm not trying to insult anybody here. But people of deeply generous impulse want to think the best of everybody. They want to hope that common ground is still possible. There's a tendency to think that uh, people who hold opinions that are, are the opposite of theirs simply are poorly informed or that they haven't had time yet to properly develop a mature worldview. There's a, there's a kind of paternalism that is, is very common 
uh, which is, I think, part of what the attraction of the phrase white working class reflects. Uh, there's a sense that a lot of people just haven't fully reached um, mature judgments about the world. That if only they, they knew more about the world, they would see things the way that, that liberals see them. I think that's wishful thinking that springs from a deep need to have the world be a, a happier place. I mean, if everybody, if everybody is potentially your friend, if everybody is potentially somebody who could agree with you, the world is a safer place, a happier place. I, I don't mean to talk down to people who subscribe to this view, but I think it's mistaken. Back with respect to what we were saying about you know, attitudes towards empirical data and attitudes towards education, I think that you can't simply sprinkle facts on people and have them change their minds or change their fundamental worldviews. And uh, I sometimes use a word that I coined myself to characterize the belief in kind of the magical power of facts, uh, the magical power of education. I sometimes call that factarian, which is a terrible neologism. I apologize for it. But I, I wanted a word to characterize the, the worldview that facts have a kind of transforming power. So there's, there's this undying wish to oppose what appear to be mistakes or to see people who oppose you as simply being mistaken rather than really holding opposite opinions, which they have thought through and they believe in and they believe in devoutly. So the idea that you can sort of magically transform people by educating them a bit, I think is not a viable way to think about it. I'll add one other thing too, and that is that from the standpoint of the other side of the culture war, a lot of um, Trump supporters think that, that even really well-meaning liberals harbor ill will towards them and are trying to suppress them and, uh, and, uh, and abuse them in various ways. Um, I, so I think the, the, the misunderstanding is mutual. It's hard for a lot of Trump voters to believe that Clinton or Biden voters aren't evil. And it's hard for a lot of Clinton and, and Biden voters to believe that other people hold that worldview. I don't know if that I don't know if that helps. Yeah, it does. The, the question is is why people think like this. But I mean, it's it's very ingrained, I think, in 19th and 18th century liberal thought and the idea of people being blank slates, and noble savages, and all of that. But I mean, look. There, there, there are, there are, there are facts, and and they're they're recalcitrant things, and so I was heartened that even you know Nancy Pelosi yesterday said the enemy is in the House, the House of Representatives, and didn't say oh these are good people on both sides, and we happen to disagree, and we should compromise by letting them kill only half of us or whatever. Another thing that's very heartening is, and obviously it's not what the mainstream Democrats ever really wanted to pursue, but now you've got a Justice Department and an FBI that really look like they're going to get serious against white nationalist domestic terrorism because it's really an immediate, an immediate threat. And I think that if you, you think that like there's good people on both sides, to use the expression, and that these folks are just misinformed, you're not going to be able to meet the threat, which you would be able to meet if you understood that you got people who are out to get you. And you're in a war, as, as Gosar said, a far-right uh, Congress guy in, in, in Arizona, they asked him, you know, do you think it's going to get to civil war? He says, we're in a civil war. We just haven't started shooting yet. 
Well, they started, if not before, they started on, on January 6th. The question is how we defend ourselves. So when you understand that there are people out to get you and that you're in a war, you get to the point where you say, what do you need to do to defeat the enemy? And the key is always making the enemy want to give up. This is, I think, what's been been missing from the discussion. I mean, I, I fully agree, not, not, not between us, I mean, the, the broader social discussion. And I, I, I fully agree that, that, you know, the kind of authoritarian, or you might not like that word, fascist, uh, whatever sentiment, I mean, it's, it's not just going to erode or go away, it's, it's, it's there. But it can be kept in check and, and not allowed to express itself. So what I go back to is with the Civil War, in the early days of the Civil War, and Marx looking at the way that Lincoln was fighting the Civil War, and, and Marx saying his mistake is to try to fight this war on constitutional grounds. It has to be fought on revolutionary grounds. And one single Negro regiment you know, in the Union Army would have a remarkable effect on Southern nerves. It would frustrate and demoralize the South. And I, I think we need to start thinking about ways that these folks will be demoralized and just give up the fight. I think I differ with you on, on this point. First of all, I would make a sharp distinction between people who supported the assault on the Capitol and the large, large majority of Trump voters. Uh, the best poll data shows that something like 8% did support uh, what that assault represented. And that's very serious. Um, I heard Bernie Sanders the other day referring to that group as fanatics. But I, I differ with you on a, on, a, on a couple of levels here, I think. First of all, I would I would never characterize um, Trump's base as fascist. I don't I, again. It's an unhelpful word and it's name calling. Most most of Trump's Trump, most Trump voters have very ordinary garden variety attitudes towards authority that tens of millions of people hold. My sense is that the 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 path forward is not to be vindictive towards Trump voters. In in no way to respond to them in an authoritarian way. My, my sense is that the majority is already anti-Trump. The, the way forward is not to spend a lot of time trying to crush evil, but rather to build on what we've, what we've already begun. So tens of millions of people demonstrated for progressive causes in the United States in 2020. Um, I think the path forward is to work with our allies to build um, the movements that can pass reforms, and those reforms will pass by, by means of votes. If the minority ends up feeling discouraged because they're a minority, so be it. But they, in the shorter run, they can simply, they're outnumbered, and they can simply be outvoted, and there can be more energy shown in defense of real reform. Um, than opposing it. So I personally, even even though even though I I, I have studied this subject for years, and I certainly take uh, Trump's base very seriously in all the ways that we've been discussing, I I don't have them at the center of my my vision of politics right now. I I, I see positive possibility of working with our friends and allies as the, as the priority, and if that's done successfully, we will enact those reforms, uh, with or without any people who change sides in the culture war. In my opinion, if we 
I spent a lot of time obsessing over people with Trump's attitudes. It, it kind of deflects us from what we really need to do, which is to win over liberals who are in denial, to win over progressives who think that kitchen table issues might be the only things we can win. So I, I favor working with our friends and allies and simply outnumbering and outvoting and, and showing greater resolve in social movements. Yeah, I, I don't think I said that the, the entirety of Trump's base was fascist or even that the entirety of Trump's base was was authoritarian. Even I didn't say anything about the majority of the Trump's base supporting the insurrection per se. My, my point is not to understand any of this as static at a moment in time or, or even, you know, cross-sectionally. Yes, you've got the, the crazies who were more crazy than the others, but the, the others are enabling the craziness. So they're all in it together. And these are forces that are arrayed against us and that, that, that are threatening to us. Um, and the whole idea of being able to defeat them electorally or by voting, I, I think, has to be rethought in light of the fact that the election was almost stolen. And, and that the Republicans are ramping up voter suppression as we speak. But I, what, what surprised me is that you, you didn't want to characterize Trump voters as particularly authoritarian, where I, I think that your, your data and, and, and the other data show that uh, although the attitudes are there throughout the population, they're particularly striking among the, the Trump voters, no? I'm in no way backing away from that point substantively. I've just been saying something that I've been feeling for a long time, which is that the word itself tends to it, – people think they understand what that word means what that word means when they hear it. So people who are predisposed to see Trump, Trump voters as authoritarian think they already know what that word means when they hear it. Trump voters themselves, when they hear that word, um, see it as a, a slur. It, the word itself seems to me to be – at best, a secondary matter. What's important is to understand what really motivates people. And what motivates progressives, it seems to me to be the, the, the bigger question right now. Because if liberals and progressives remain in denial about the dangers that we face, if they continue to think that the only things we can successfully push for are lowest common denominator reforms, really small reforms at the level of the kitchen table, then I think we're going to yield the energy, the momentum that uh, broader sectors of the public have, have demonstrated. I agree with you completely that elections per se are not the solution. But in our system, for, you know, for the foreseeable future, voting in elections is the determining factor. And I believe that the best way to succeed um, at that level and every level is by building genuine social movements from the ground up. Politicians say what they think uh, their voters want to hear. If they are persuaded that big movements for progressive change are growing and uh, are, are serious, politicians will increasingly tell them what they want to hear too. And what they say will have to be heard with skepticism. You never know for sure if a politician is saying something that the politician means. I recall a, a slogan once, this is unfair to the Irish, but the slogan was, never trust an Irish politician until he's safely dead. Because you never know, uh, at some point, 
uh, the politician may change course and, and, uh, and undermine you. But it seems to me, thinking about this positively, building the movements from the ground up, having them be so massive they can't be ignored, is the path uh, that, that, can, that can lead to success. That, that in itself will defeat the opposition. Hey, just a moment, we're going to get back to that interview. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes um, to hear from Andrew Clard of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. We talked a little bit about the role of disinformation and propaganda earlier, but you know, Trump has now been theoretically deplatformed from Twitter. What is the role of the Trump media play in the Trumpism phenomena and you know what potential for dampening that phenomena is is in, in deplatforming Trump? If you, if you go back and study uh, the history of social attitudes, you'll find that a lot of attitudes that describe like the attitudes of Trump voters, were found in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, but they weren't amplified in the same way that uh, the media makes possible now. 
So this is something that I think that is widely understood, that views that once were very far fringe views can now be shared with tens or hundreds of millions of people in the short run. So someone who might have had a, a sort of like a, a buried tendency to believe a conspiracy theory, who was never exposed to a conspiracy theory, now has a much greater chance of being exposed. So if there were people who were predisposed to think or feel in these ways, but there was no spark, that predisposition wasn't kindled into a flame, I don't think there's any question that the media makes that possible to a much greater extent than ever before. And what everybody has noticed, that Trump was virtually a Twitter president, is something that really has to be carefully thought through. I mean, he had a daily, oftentimes many times daily, platform to reach out to, I think, a, a Twitter following that ultimately reached like 80-plus million people every single day were hearing from him. And so he was obviously an avid follower of many different kinds of conspiracy theory and right-wing media. And so he himself became a conduit. So even though I do think that, that the balance lies with the followers, followers lead uh, more than, and, and leaders tend to follow, nonetheless, um, having that kind of bully pulpit, having uh, a Twitter following that large is absolutely significant. And back to the original point, does Trump's personality matter? I do think it, it matters, too. He spent 15 years on TV crafting a persona, learning the art, how to, how to speak to his people. If he were to exit the stage, even though Trumpism might remain just as large as it is, it might lose a lot of its focus, because would Sean Hannity uh, be able to leave Fox and, and enter politics and catalyze the same kind of response? That seems unlikely. Are there other politicians on the scene right now who could evoke the same kind of visceral response that, that Trump evokes? I, I doubt it. Uh, people want what Trump represents, but Trump has a higher ability to represent that, I think, than, uh, than the large majority of other politicians. So he has used um, that sensitivity, that ability, to a very large effect. Well, David Norman Smith, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I think um, you've had a lot of great things to say. I think our listeners will get a lot out of this discussion. Well, well thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Congratulations. You have made it to the end of the podcast. If you enjoy Radio Free Humanity, please do not hesitate to write to us, to subscribe to the podcast, to share it with your friends and enemies. You can even leave a donation on the MHI website. If you want to know more about some of the issues discussed in today's podcast, please do visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org.